Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March the 26th, 2019. This is episode 2408 of the Survival Podcast. It's the beginning of a multi-part series. I don't think this series is only going to be too long, but I also don't think that we're going to be doing it three weeks in a row. I've already kind of got it in my head that I'm going to do part two of this series next Tuesday. Then we'll probably take a week or two off, and I'll come back and finish it up with one or two more parts. I'm not sure, but we're going to go to permaculture today. And I kind of went through some of my recent archives, like last couple of years, and realized like I talk about permaculture all the time, but I haven't really deep-dived into it. Maybe individual techniques, but not the design science as a whole. So today's episode is 2408, The Design Science of Permaculture, Part 1. If you're getting ready to turn it off because you're like, permaculture's not my thing, give me a chance, man. You know, if you listen to this show regularly and you're like, I don't know, I say that on any subject we talk about. Give me a chance, you know. Listen to about half the episode, and if you're not sucked in, then, yeah, don't listen to those subjects anymore. Uh, podcasts are pick and choose and take what you like. We have... Almost 11 years now of podcasts to go through. Again, over 2,400 episodes. So, yeah, if you don't like a subject that we go into, I understand. But give it a shot because I think that if you listen today and you don't really understand permaculture, you're going to come away with it with a complete different understanding than what you thought it was. And you're going to find out that it's a lot more than about growing food. It's about design science. It's about systems-level thinking. And it will apply to your life outside of growing green things. I promise you that. We'll get to all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is Western Botanicals. Hey, we're going to talk about permaculture and growing stuff today. One of the things we'll talk about, even we'll talk about a whole layer dedicated to it, is herbs. I have always found herbs to be the kinder, gentler way to deal with life's problems compared to pharmaceuticals. It's not that I don't use pharmaceuticals. It's not that I'm totally opposed to them. I'm not one of those people. But I do believe if something can be addressed gently with herbs, it's the way to go first. My go-to choice for herbs is Western Botanicals. If it's legal and herbal, you'll find it there with real people that really care about you, that will answer the phone and help you out, located in Utah, not New Delhi. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, bulkammo.com. Guys, gun, no ammo, club. So you got an overpriced club that really can't do the job that it's supposed to do, so you got to have ammo. You need ammo to train with. You need ammo to put meat on the table. You need ammo to defend your life and property if it comes down to it. I don't know a better place with better pricing and faster shipping to get that ammo than BulkAmmo.com. Long-term sponsor of the show. Been with us about six years now. Always take care of the audience. Had an issue yesterday with the discount code for MSB members. Got in touch with them. A couple emails back and forth. Boom, fixed. Always take care of you guys. Check them out today, bulkammo.com. With that, let's go ahead and dive into today's show. I want to start out with um, what permaculture is based on. And, and let me give you kind of the overview of the way that we're going to talk about permaculture today. We're going to start out with the prime directive and the ethics. Then we're going to go into what's known as zones of design. And today we're going to talk about layers of the forest. These four components drive the entire systems thinking process of permaculture. It doesn't mean once you know them, you know everything permaculture. 
I've been doing this for about 10 years, and I don't know everything permaculture. It doesn't mean that everything in permaculture will be directly attributable or attached to these things. But once you understand them, that system process begins to work for you. And you begin to expand the thinking beyond, where do I put a garden? Where do I put a pond? You start expanding it to, how do I design my life? Or where have I seen this before? Okay, so we're going to do that today. We're going to talk about um, some permaculture design principles. We're going to put a few of these into every episode in this series. Today we're going to have six key permaculture design principles. We're going to talk about key takeaways from the food forest concept and the forest layering concept. And I'm going to talk to you today at the end about three pervasive myths about permaculture. And when we get through with this, I think that if you um, really didn't understand permaculture, you won't know everything. There's no way you could do that in a single podcast, right? You won't even be able to like run out and just start designing your own systems. But it'll switch on a light for you. To those of you that are familiar with permaculture, especially people that maybe have had a PDC or something like that, some of this may seem remedial, like You probably know the seven layers of the forest. You probably understand zone zero through zone five design. But I think that we can always look at it the way you do when you play football in high school, let's say. You have a really shitty game. You've been really working hard. You've been really doing some advanced tactics and stuff. And you just go out and you just don't perform the way that you're supposed to. What do you know you're doing next practice? Fundamentals. Fundamentals, right? Blocking, ball handling, right? You're going right back to fundamentals. And that's true in any sport. In life, we should be doing this more frequently because we're, we're a lot more oblivious to the feedback that we've kind of lost some of our grounding. Because we go along to get along, we get held up in life, but if we occasionally go revisit the fundamentals, what you'll find then is you, if you listen to this show today, even if you're familiar with the concepts, When you take a walk this evening or a walk tomorrow or when you get to walk your property or through a park Saturday this, this weekend or what have you, you're going to look at things and start to re-notice things that you stopped noticing. So we're going to work on fundamentals for the people that are experienced and we're going to work on fundamentals to establish people that aren't today. That's my goal. So let's start out with as fundamental as we can get. Everything in the design science of permaculture is based on four statements. There are the prime directive and the three ethics. Let's talk about that quick because they're easy to understand. That's why they were used as the anchor point. The prime directive of permaculture is that the only ethical decision we can make is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. And it is incredibly simple and incredibly profound at the same time. And what it does and what it should do Because there's a lot of people that want to politicize permaculture. What it should do is immediately depoliticize permaculture. It doesn't say, I need to take responsibility for your existence and your children and tell you how to live. It says, you, Jack, must, if you want to be an ethical human, look around you and say, what do you need to be able to exist? That's your responsibility. Now look at your children, look at your grandchildren. What do they need to exist? As the elder, you're responsible for them as well. That is your prime directive. That does not mean 
that we have no obligation or responsibility whatsoever to our fellow man. What it means is until you have done that, you have no business telling anybody else how to live their life. None. Right? You're the person whose house is on fire telling your brother-in-law he needs to put in a smoke alarm. That's where you are until you see to the needs that you have. And then you can stand. And when, you, when you're doing that and you're trying to fulfill those needs that you need to exist to be happy, to be a fully realized human being, to not be dependent upon others where they can't be responsible for themselves and their children because you're now their dependent. And you should be upright and take care of yourself. As you do that and you say, well, how do I feed myself? How do I clothe myself? How do I provide my energy? How do I provide for my own economy? How to provide for my own health? How do I provide all these things? And you start building systems. There's three ethics that we adhere to. Number one, care of the earth. Before I go on, actually, I want to back up where these three ethics came from. Bill Mollison, co-founder of Permaculture, along with a gentleman named David Holgram, when he was building this, he knew that he had to have this. This was more important than how you design a garden. It was more important than how you put in a dam. It was more important than how you build a recycling system. More important than anything that you anchor on something ethical and a directive that people could understand. And as a student of indigenous cultures around the world, he took the common ideals that existed in indigenous cultures from all over the world, Native Americans, Native South Americans, Australian Aborigines, big influence on Bill being from Australia himself, and, and all parts of the world, and said, what rules did these societies have for themselves that were the most universal? They popped up everywhere. And he was able to distill that commonality down to these three things. Care of the earth, care of people, and return of surplus. Care of the earth is pretty self-explanatory. Everything that we do, we should ask ourselves first, does this damage the place we live on? Because we only get one of them. And in the real world, sometimes the answer is going to be, this does create some damage. And there are people that are purists who say, well, then it's not permaculture. Well, um, if the difference is between doing that and people dying, we also have to do the second ethic of care of people. So we have to balance that. The question really needs to be, is there some way that I can mitigate or eliminate this damage? I need to at least ask the question first, is there any other way to get this done without resulting in this damage? Or if there isn't, is there some way to repair this damage to make the, the action itself neutral? If I energy audit it, and yeah, we use some dirty energy to produce this thing, but it produces 20, 30, 40 times the yield of that energy that went into it, then it's really not. Now we're into a regenerative state. So that doesn't give us license to just go out willy-nilly and start setting coal piles on fire or something like that. But it does give you some sense of reality. Because if you sit down and try to figure it out, you can figure out how everything you do in some way negatively impacts something somewhere. So you balance that with reality. Don't care of people. A lot of the environmentalism proposed by the powers that be would be very detrimental to human beings. It would be horrible uh, in its impact on human beings. And that's also not permaculture. That's what I'm saying. One cannot be to the exclusion of the other. If what you're doing starves people, 
It's not permaculture. If what you're doing destroys entire economies and therefore underlying cultures of individuals, it's not permaculture. So we also have that ethic that we must care for others. And just as our actions must not harm the planet, they must not harm our fellow man. The next design restriction is return of surplus, or, or ethic is the return of surplus. So this is the one that everybody tried to politicize and changed it to distribute the surplus or redistribute the surplus, right? To make it like a tax. When you have a surplus, you have to give it away. This is so counter to the ethic. And again, I don't, you guys know I'm political. I really am. I hate the state. Inside permaculture, I take my politics hat off and I get rid of it because I know it destroys the whole system if you let it in. It is, it is, is literally a disease, a virus inside permaculture to bring your politics with you. If you change return of surplus to redistribute surplus or share surplus, what you do is you, you break the entire point. The other way this ethic was defined, and when Bill first wrote Permaculture One, it was how he actually designed it, and it later got shortened to make it easier to understand. But it was setting limits to population and consumption. That's the original third ethic. And it can also be stated as to return surplus. What that means is very simple. If we are a hunter-gatherer society and there are only so many deer in the forest, there's only so many people in our village that that forest can support. And we either need to expand the forest or limit our own population. We can't be like locusts on it. Likewise, there's only so many deer in there. If we kill all the deer and all get fat and happy this year, next year there'll be no deer. We've now harmed the earth. We've depleted the surplus. And we are going to die. Additionally, many of the actions that we take create surpluses of things people do not want, like waste. If we're returning the surplus, it is up to us to understand this waste product How do we return it to the system from which it came so that that system becomes regenerative? That's as far as I'm going to go with the ethics today. But if you just check yourself when you're taking steps, is this furthering my ability to take care of myself and my children? Is this thing the best I can do to be a good steward of what I get to control on planet Earth? Not what everybody else does, just me. Does this harm people? And if it doesn't, Great. If it does, how do I fix that? And any surplus created, what's done with it? And there are people that say that this can't be done. Well, then we're screwed. If we don't care for the earth, care for people, and, and take responsibility for the waste, and we don't take surplus and return it to the goal of the first two ethics, the care of the earth and care of people, we have no future as a species. So it can be done, And the reason, this is like the most important part of this, the reason Bill put it there as the bookends, the things that start the whole process, is if you don't have it there as a check, you'll do the easiest thing, the most expedient thing. And a lot of times the solutions are abundantly simple, embarrassingly simple. But since something was easier and faster, we just did that instead like dumping chemical fertilizers on the monocrop fields. And now we have entire watersheds that are considered not safe to swim in or eat the fish out of, just from agricultural waste alone. 
not necessarily PCBs or industry, from agriculture. I just read an article today, and I said the headline sounded like yellow journalism, and when I looked into it, it wasn't. It was Minnesota, I think, the southwestern corner of Minnesota. They have a standard for what makes a body of water a recreational or fishing body of water, and almost nothing left in that corner is usable according to that standard now. And it's from agricultural waste. It's not from a coal mine. It's not from a gold mine. And it's not from a tire factory. It's from people growing corn and soy. And if we ask that question first, then we don't get into this problem. And as we do that, then we have to say, okay, you know what? Jack, you just said, well, we can be concerned about that over there, but right now there's nothing I can do about that. I have this quarter acre. I have this acre. I have this five acres. I have this apartment complex I live in in my porch. And I have the people around me that I influence. And that's all I got that I can actually do something about. And this is why we're going into this series. My show is about solutions more than problems. So once you come, that's the big realization right there, guys. There's all this bad shit in the world. But I, re I can get mad about it. I can post articles about it. I can vote harder. I don't really change that. What we change is what we change in ourselves and by example what we encourage others to do. So then we have to start designing that lifestyle. And one way we can do that, not the only way, one way we can do that is design the land that we control to start taking care of some of our needs. Because it's the only ethical decision to take responsibility for our own existence. So we have what we call zones of design in permaculture. And I always learned in the beginning zone one through five. And later people kind of got clever and inserted a zone zero. And I thought that was just plucky, you know, I want to be smarter than the next person. The more I thought about it, the more I decided to start teaching the zones of design with zero through five myself. Because they're really easy to understand and it, it stops us separating ourselves from the natural systems around us by starting with zone zero. Zone zero is inside your shelter. If you are a, if you're like back to earth, total primitive person, you build a hut in the middle of the woods, that hut is your zone zero. If you're a suburbanite that lives in a typical 3-2, that house is your zone zero. And we should be thinking about how we design the inside, not just the outside. The outside's the fun stuff. It's gardening, right? And it's wildlife, and it's a forest, and it's trees, and where we keep our firewood, and where our compost is, and it all seems to make sense, but we live in our homes. So if we're really lucky, we get to design our home from scratch. Most of us don't. But if we do, we can think about things like not just the solar aspect. If you think about the solar aspect, that's how the sun hits your house. If we design a house in the right climate the right way, in the winter it gets a lot of warmth from the sun as it hits it from the front face. In the summer, if we design it right, it gets less impact from the sun because we're trying to keep it cool as the sun's higher overhead. Maybe we can design tree canopies to help shade the roof but let the sun, like we can do all that. But if we're designing from the very beginning, we might think, you know what? It's probably the southeastern corner of the house is probably the best place to put a bedroom because we want to be cool when we sleep. Also kind of the back side of the house, probably a good place for a kitchen. Kitchen naturally warms the rest of the house, but we want to keep the kitchen cool. So we might change the rooms in a home 
based on how much outside influence the home's going to get. Just one example. But zone zero design is like, okay, since I am going to have a compost pile and I'm going to have waste from my kitchen, how do I handle the waste inside the house until the waste goes outside the house? So that I don't get lazy and just throw it in the garbage. I don't feel like it today. And you can go from there. I don't want to spend too long on the zones. I just want to kind of go through them pretty quickly. But that's just an example. Zone one. The way I describe zone one in the show notes today is where you naturally step every day or most days. When you open your front door and you walk outside your house, you're standing in the first square foot of zone one. And pretty much most of the things you can see and touch and easily get to and easily interact with are zone one. Out the back door, the same thing. And the best way to design your system is to walk outside of your house and say, well, what do I do with this first square foot? Okay, now what do I do with the square feet that touch it? Now what do I do with the square feet that touch those? Now what do I do with the square feet that touch those? And one more time, what do I do with the square feet that touch those? Somewhere in that, you'll begin to build the first pieces of your system. It might be compost. It might be an herb garden. It might be a trellis that shades your porch in summer but lets light in winter. I don't know. But that's zone one. The places you will naturally take care of naturally beyond every day. Zone two. One way to think about it, and there's lots of ways to think about it, but where you are weekly. We're in zone one. We're going to have a lot of our annual production, our, our kitchen garden and stuff. In an ideal situation, sometimes we have to make adjustments here. Zone two, we're going to move more to our bushes and our shrubs and kind of our small-scale orcharding, our backyard orcharding is another way to think about it. Zone three. Zone three on a large property will be more where we have what we would call our main crops, your starch crops, potatoes, corn, squash, large places where we kind of get it. We might do a lot of work early in the season. We kind of get it planted, and it just grows. It's more of your broad acre crops, more of your things that you think about more like conventional farming. Zone four is your larger scale farm forestry. These would be your food forests, your managed forests where you have intensive management practice, but the system looks very much like nature. Trees get really big. We're growing food. We're growing fiber. We're growing medicine. We're growing food for livestock. So it's this, it's that larger forest management area. And then zone five is nature. This would be, on a, to have a zone five, you probably either have a token zone five, which means you just set a little side, a little spot, you don't touch it and you see what happens. But on a zone five property, a true zone five, you probably have a lot of acreage. And it's just letting nature control things. And maybe little tweaks, little things. Maybe there isn't a forest yet, so maybe we plant a forest. We decide what's going to grow there. But as it takes off, We let nature do what nature does. And inside that forest, we do some hunting and some gathering and recreation. But overall, that's for nature. Now, to make this work, there are five rules of design that I teach anyway. Number one, the most important one, you do not have them all on all properties. If you have a quarter acre in, uh, in suburbia, You can even force it, 
right? You could say there's my zone three, there's my little you know, row of corn or something like that or whatever. But, but pretty much when you can walk out in your backyard, you can design the whole thing as kind of a blended zone one, zone two design. We still think about the process of daily life. So, for instance, if we have chickens in a coop that have to be let out every day, and there's a path to that coop, even though the whole thing's got a zone one, zone two, we really are intensively going to be on that path every day. So we might put some sort of bedding on both sides of that path that we grow productive systems in. And that way we know that every day when we walk through there, we'll see the weeds. And if we're using chickens, we're probably using the chickens for composting. So right next to the chicken coop, we probably have some sort of composting component. So as we walk through there, oh, look, there's some weeds. Reach over, pick them up, drop them in the compost bin. Most natural thing a human being could do. But if we don't design it that way, if we don't think about it that way, then it doesn't happen. So we, while we don't have you know, a zero through five on all property, we still have to think about the frequency that we're on a given square foot and how to make our lives easier. You know, Because if we do that, then things get done. If we put the garden all the way in the back corner because it's out of sight, out of mind, and out of the way, then it's going to get a lot more weeds in it before we give it our attention. So even though we don't have them all, we still think about how much time we spend on every square foot. Next, in a large property where we have all of them, they get progressively larger. Um, what I mean by that is your zone one's pretty small. If you had a 100-acre property, this is not a hard rule. Okay, You don't have to do this. But this would be kind of what you might expect. You have a 100-acre property. Your zone one and zone two, kind of a merged productive heart of the system, might be an acre. Might be less. It all depends on how the property lies, what your goals are, how many people you're supporting. Your zone three might be five acres. Your zone four might be 15 And your zone five might be the entire rest of the property. That would be actually a fantastic way to design and develop a property. Because that way you, you can actually, with the technology you have and the time you have, give your attention mostly to that you know half acre to two, two and a half acres that are the heart of providing for yourself, your needs. And then the rest of the property becomes very, very attractive to nature. That doesn't mean we might not do some things and even what we think of as a zone five. I'll always, if I can, put bodies of water into property that don't have them. If I have to clear an acre to make a one-acre lake, in, in, in fairly established forest, I'll do it. Because that lake will give so much more back than what I've taken away from it. I won't clear 80 acres to put in an 80-acre lake, but on 80 acres of forest... I can conceivably put in five to even ten acres of water in little bodies throughout the whole system. And that will just do incredible things for the system beyond what we can do today. Um, the next is they're not circular. They're not concentric circles. Most people that teach permaculture will have some slide in a deck that's like you know a little circle and a zero and then another circle, like a bullseye pattern. You can't think of it that way. They need to be very flexible. Again, you might have a zone one really small around the house, 
Zone 2 begins just past it, but there might be a peninsula, if you thought of it, in the way that you would draw it, that goes out to that chicken coop, or out to that compost pile, or out to a mailbox, or out to a place you just really enjoy. If you have a sit sitting area, say you have a small product, about a half acre in suburbia, and you create a little sanctuary that you go to every day, and you read a book, have a cup of coffee, you have a little deck kind of further out, maybe some bird habitat, something like that. And you make it a matter of course that most days you walk out a path to that place. That's part of your zone one. The space itself, might you might even manage it more like a little zone five, your little token zone five, your little nature oasis. But you are going to be there. So we think about the zone one opportunities in the design. If we think about it circular, that doesn't happen. The terrain changes zones. You know, you, if you have a house and it's located on kind of a high point of the property and only a few feet behind the house it drops off like a cliff, that's probably not zone one, even though it's really close. Where zone one might go much further out the front side where the land is level. So everything changes the zones. Um, in the end, zones are subject to the designer, not the other way around. You don't force a zone into a property that doesn't work for you. If you end up with a relatively small zone five, even on a larger, probably say 20 acres, and instead of ending up with like 80% of the property in zone five, you end up with like four acres in a zone five, that's okay. That's okay. If there's a reason for it, if it, if it works better for you and what you're trying to do, that's okay. We just, as we get to larger properties, we need to think about having something we leave behind for nature. Some sort of buffer zone, some riparian zone, etc. And this is the most important one. It's the one I see people make the most mistakes on, and I have as well as I develop this property. Spend most of your initial effort on zone one or zone one and two. Get the gardens in. Get the small trees in. Get the backyard orchard in. Get the aquaponics or aquatic ponds in. Get the bird baths in. Get the pads in. Get the water catchment off the roof in. Whatever it is. You design a property with an intensive, well-done zone one, zone two approach. You'll have more food from what you can produce than most families could ever use. So start in that intensive zone one, zone two management area. Once you get that working, broaden out. Now, exceptions, again, zones are subject to the designer. If you're designing a farm and you're doing a full-on permaculture farm, you're not going to spend two years screwing with zone one, zone two before you put in your mainstay crops that actually are going to pay your bills. Or if you're going to be running pasture poultry or whatever, that's, that's a different situation. Okay, This is for homesteading is the main thing I'm talking about here. As we get... The understanding of zones down, the next thing we really want to take a look at is the greatest teacher, the forest. We want to look at the layers of the forest. The layers of the forest are seven primary forest layers. You'd learn this if you went to forestry school. Number one is the canopy. When you walk into true woods where it's really bright, and when you get inside the woods, it's completely shaded, you look up, the highest layer you see, that's a canopy. When that canopy begins to touch... You get that true forest feeling. And anybody has been in a real forest knows what I'm talking about. You have a canopied forest. That is, your, that is your grandfather's in the family. As you look in that forest, 
as you come out toward the edge, especially if the forest is, is growing and it's expanding, and natural forests do get bigger, they advance. And in, within glades, and glades are simply open areas of the forest, you'll see younger trees waiting to take over and taking over so they can become part of the canopy. That is your sub-canopy. As you move out to the edges, you know, usually when you get into a mature forest, once you're in there, you can walk around like it's a park. You might find some areas of buck laurel or something like that in the northeast, for instance, but in general, it's pretty easy to move through a mature forest. <clears throat> but if you're in a field and you're moving into the forest, choose that first few feet. Any hunter knows this. Like, it's tangled in briars and ah. And that's where your shrubs will be most dominant in that transitional stage into the forest. And you'll have a shrub layer. But you'll have shrubs throughout forests as well. Like I said, buck laurel handles the shade, provides cover for animals. It's not really edible, but it does provide cover in bedding zones and protection from predators and from humans, for deer. Why well, they call it buck laurel. So you have the shrub layer. Then you have your herbaceous layer. Your herbaceous layer is going to be all of your plants that are not woody plants, all your herbs. And these show up in places we generally wouldn't think of. For instance, in northeastern forests, there's something called ramps, which are like a wild onion-type plant. And they come up in the spring when the leaves are off the trees. They're an herbaceous layer, even though they can be in the middle of the forest. And then time successes them out for the season. When the shade comes, they go away and they come back next year. But we also have a lot of that herbaceous layer on the edge as well. This is going to be all, again, your herbaceous plants. Think of going field to forest transition. We're also going to have ground covers. Now, deep in the forest, most of your ground cover is dead. Most of your ground cover is leaves. Because, again, the ground is shaded. But as we get glades and areas, you'll find even deep in forest, you'll find like patches of little meadows and stuff in glades. Nature does not like bare earth. If something doesn't cover it, nature will cover it with something. And that will be a ground cover of some kind. For us as permaculturists, it might be comfrey, which is herbaceous and a ground cover at the same time. It might be a creeping type of, of useful ivy. It might be something like sweet potato vine. It might be clovers. It might be a pasture mix. We might be doing a civil pasture forest where we have rows of trees with open alleyways that can be grazed in between, and we need to cover that. And when we do that with trees, we don't have a deep forest effect. We have an edge forest effect, and we'll need ground cover that goes up into the areas where the trees let light in, or nature will put something there we don't want. Then we have a rhizome layer. A rhizome layer is sweet potato vine. There's another yield. There's a root uh, on a somewhat shady, mottled shade, moist bank in like a, a river bottom ecosystem. We might have a ground cover in the form of groundnut, Apius americana. But below the surface, that groundnut will yield an edible tuber called groundnut. So that would be another example of most of your rhizomes are going to create a either a vine or a ground cover at the same time. Just know there's something down there. And then last, we have that vine layer. And vines can often be plants that function as rhizomes, ground cover, and vines. 
The key part of the layering system we're talking about here, though, is that vine that climbs up those trees, up those shrubs, up those bushes. And that could be something like muscadine grapes grow wild throughout much of the southeast into the southwest. Right? Fox grapes grow in the northeastern climates very well on their own independently. And again, if we don't put something there, nature will. Like briars. Right? So that's what we've got. And then when we think about those layers, here's your key takeaways from them. They exist. I've said it several times here. If you don't feel it, Nature will. Um, there was a gentleman, I can't remember his last name, Jason something, the Hunt, Gather, Hunt, Gather, Grow, Eat uh, far, uh, podcast and a gardening podcast as well. Back when I started, I kind of he was one of the people that started a podcast after seeing what I was doing. We got along really, really good, and I'm not saying anything negative about him, but he didn't understand permaculture. He was just, hey, I plant a garden. I plant a tree. You know, He was doing permaculture without knowing it in many ways, but... It's sloppy design. It creates more work. And he said, what if I don't want a vine layer? What if I don't want a ground cover layer? Right? These are not things you put in place. These are spaces. They exist. Nature's not two-dimensional. It's three-dimensional. There is a vine layer. If we put nothing in a vine layer... It is either incumbent upon us to keep anything from going there or we need to put something there we want there. Because if we don't, nature, sooner or later, will send a vine into the layer. Again, the space exists, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. So tying right into the first takeaway, if you don't fill them up, they exist, so nature will, is they scale up and down. A lot of times when you talk about the layers of a forest, people lose the lesson. Remember, the forest is the great teacher. The forest teaches us all we need to know about how to survive. That's why this is a survival topic. And all we need to know about designing systems, because the forest is the most advanced natural system in the world, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. And so we can scale down the forest layers to where the canopy layers with dwarf trees, or trees pruned to dwarf height. We can make a little forest in a backyard that looks like a little island, oasis. But if we were to walk into it, We're, as, we're like a giant walking through this massive canopy. And we can reach the top of the trees and pick the fruit off of them for ourselves without having to use a ladder. We can scale it down that way. We can scale it down to a garden. The garden or a container garden has layers. I talked about that in container gardening. But you know, I plant four peppers in a fairly large container But then I'll go in and I'll sprinkle amaranth in there. That's what I did this last couple weeks. And amaranth is a huge plant. It doesn't have to be. You can plant it close together. It grows small plants. And by the time it gets up to the point where it's about six, eight inches high, I'm cutting it out and using it as a sautéing herb in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sauté. as a vegetable. I'm using it as a vegetable amaranth. It's a really very big grain. Well, that's allowing basically a canopy and subcanopy layer. But I'll go in there as well in that same bed, and I'll put a tomato plant in the back, and I'll train it up a back wall. There's a vine. In the front of a container like that, I'll pop a sweet potato slip in there. Now I have a rhizome yield, and I'll get four or five sweet potatoes off that one vine, and the vine trails over the, the, the container down to the ground. It becomes ground cover of a next system. So I have those layers there. So if I have 
something like a cornfield, and I'm growing corn as a starch crop, I have a lot of vertical space in there that a vine could use. Well, I could put a bean in there. I don't have to, but if I don't, I'm wasting the space. I'm wasting the yield. And then I could complete the whole three-sister circle and put something like a, a winter squash in between the corn rows and let it be a ground cover. It, it, so you start to understand, like, maybe I don't address all seven layers in every system, but I need to acknowledge the spaces that they primarily have, and either I need to control that, so I can control ground cover with something like a mulch, or I need to fill it where I can grow productive ground cover. And so you need to understand that that layered system isn't just a great big forest. It's everywhere down to a little, you know, when I do design of a fish tank, a planted fish tank, I design layers into the fish tank. Because if I don't, nature will fill the vacuum, right? Last, layers exist in natural and man-made systems. If you actually look at a city, a modern city, the center city will have a great big, great big, uh, uh, what do you call them, skyscrapers. And then you'll have smaller buildings as you move out. And then you'll go into suburbs and human dwellings. And you'll have a network of roads that run through them and a network of infrastructure. And it looks like a forest. Not a very pretty one in my opinion, but it looks like, when you break it down to its main components, it looks like a forest. If you look at anything that humans do, you'll find a layered system. And if we take this concept of layering and we add zones to it of activity, and then we marry that back to our ethics and our prime directive, all of a sudden, we start to see design opportunities everywhere we look. That's what gets really exciting about this. Now, I want to talk about six key permaculture design principles. There are many more. You'll hear many people say there's 12 principles of design. No, that's because David Holgram, almost 20 years after he helped Bill Mollison develop Permaculture 1 and 2, the founding books of permaculture, surfaced, decided he wanted to be part of this again, and he wrote a book, pretty good one, and he said, here's 12 principles of permaculture design. He never says in that book, these are the 12 principles. He just said, here's 12. And these 12 will drive the design of a system. So that's where the number 12 came from. There are dozens, hundreds of permaculture principles. And anybody can make one up as long as it fits the systems. Right? These are six of my favorite. We'll be covering more as we go. Some of them are from David's 12. There's nothing wrong with them. I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying don't limit yourself. That should be a, another principle. Number one, observe, interact, and accept feedback. That actually gets broken into two principles in David's 12. I don't really think they should be taken apart. Observe and interact and accept feedback are two separate principles. No. No. To me, they are, they are a single unifying principle. When we are going, to, and I, I know why he does it, because you can think of them in two different times, temporally. So before we start laying down the law as we see it, to the way this property should be, we should first have an understanding of it. We should look at it. We should observe it. What, 
How does energy come in and out of this property? How's the wind flow? How will a major rain event affect this property? If you've never been through it before, you don't know, right? Um, are there, is there wildlife on this property already using it? Is there a disease that's endemic to the area that will just make growing certain things way more difficult? Do certain things grow here on their own that have corollaries to cultivated plants? I mentioned amaranth earlier. If you're on a property and you see wild amaranth growing, then you probably know you're in good amaranth country, and it may be easier as a grain crop to grow amaranth than it would be to grow maize, corn. So we would observe and interact, and we gain that feedback. Now, the reason he puts the feedback separately is once we start acting, the property tells us things. The system, no matter what it is, it could be a computer system we're designing. Well, as we start to do that, we get feedback, real time and over time. But the reason I think they belong together is because you really can't separate them when you start to think about it that way. So if I have a property, for instance, and I might have an endemic disease, and on that property, every time I grow tomatoes, I get really bad blight, and I get almost no yield from my tomatoes. It's probably just time to grow something else for a while. Maybe eventually I will improve the health of the soil and the health of the system where tomatoes will grow. Maybe I keep growing some tomatoes, but then I'm propagating the fungus. So maybe I need to listen and take a, a season off really improve my soil, and then give that another shot. That's one example of accepting the feedback that comes from observation and interaction. If I go out and I watch my property, and I see a certain bird on my property, and I know that bird is an insectivore, but I see just one or two of them occasionally, I can accept that feedback and say, as an intelligent being, as an active designer, what does that bird need? Well, it needs water. Okay, I can put it in a water feature. What kind of water feature would this bird not be afraid of? Right? This bird will actually use. You know, swallows like to skim water and take water without landing. They just come across like a little dive bar and they take water. So they want a pond or a swimming pool. Not the best for them to be drinking water out of a swimming pool, but trust me, they do it. I've seen them do it. But a pond, a larger pond, 10th acre or more, really would be good for swallows, along with the habitat they need for nesting. Other birds might just need, you know, some trees, some perching area. That would be another example of interaction and feedback. Now I've got an insectivorous bird building families on my property. I'm going to have less insect pests. If I observe there are no bats, maybe I put up some bat houses. Maybe I wait before I build a hundred of them, see if any bats will use the ones I've put up. And if they do, then I put in more. That's observation and acceptance of feedback and interaction. It requires that not only do I observe, but I take the observation, and I take an action, and then I say, now that I took this action, what did I learn? And sometimes you learn, don't do that. Sometimes you learn you need to do something else to make that work. That's a design principle. Next is integrate rather than segregate. And this is not political. I guess it could be if you want to make it like anything can be. But this is about plants, for instance. The way we do modern agriculture, this is a cornfield, this is a bean field, this is a wheat field. Nature doesn't do anything that way. If I go, in, if I go into a forest 
And especially during a period of growth like spring, where lots of things are emerging. And I sit down, and I have a good understanding of the species of plants where I live. It is conceivable that from one place seated under an oak tree, if I have my glasses on, I could identify 50 species without getting up. Nature doesn't do monocrops. Even where you think it did, you find like a meadow, and you're like, it's clover. It's like five kinds of clover, different wildflowers. And what's there changes over time. Everything's temporal as well. But it's an integrated system. And when we integrate systems, we create a web instead of a line. If you have a line, think of like a net instead of a web. If I have a line and I have a hook and there's a fish on the end of it, my line gets cut. I get no fish. If I have a net, cut four or five of those lines and that net cut, but I still will get fish when I bring the net in. This is the principle of design, that we use integration of different species and technologies and design elements. It is not just about not monocropping. Integration, the chickens don't live here and the compost bin is here. The chickens work with the compost system. The chickens take the compost to a certain point at which they lose interest. Now it goes away and new compostables come in for the chickens. The chickens have bedding. They poop on it. Eventually that bedding has to come out. It goes into the compost. The compost needs to be located where it's convenient for me, for the chickens, and for me later when it needs to go onto the ground. That's another example of integration. We don't have a fish pond here and a forest here. The forest comes right up to the pond. It creates a whole interactive layer of frogs, salamanders, that then become insect predators and attracts wildlife. We want to do as much integration as we can in our designs. We need to stop thinking in a compartmentalized way, which is how society has been trained to think. It is not how humans think. We do not think compartmentalized as humans naturally because we don't like it. We don't like it. We do not like things compartmentalized. We like things blended. Go back to fish tanks for a second. If I show you a fish tank and it's full of a grass called Valsneria, nothing in there but Valsneria, it's attractive, it's green, but now when I add fish, well, now it's a fish tank. There wasn't even a fish there. It wasn't a fish tank. It's not a fish swimming in the Valsneria. It will be more appealing to the eye. But if I pull some of the Valsneria out and I put another plant in there called Rotala, that's kind of instead of bright green, more of a light green and reddish shade, and it has a different leaf shape, a different texture, now it'll be more visually appealing. Now, if I clear out some of the Valsneria, it's a real tall grass in the front, put a plant in there called Anubius. It's a low-growing broadleaf plant becomes more attractive. Now, if I take a hardscape like a piece of manzanito wood and I integrate that, now all of a sudden it looks like an ecosystem. And the person, any person, you said, here's a tank full of this and here's this integrated tank. Which one looks better? That one looks better. We think in the integration side. Science, in its attempt to isolate so that it can be understood, 
has created, created compartmentalized thinking. The Industrial Revolution created, your job is to put the wheel on the car. Your job is to hit the button that presses this piece of aluminum into this widget and stay there all day. In school, we go to math class, you learn math. We go to English class, you learn English. We go to science class, you learn science. We don't sit down and say, let's read a story and understand the math in the story. Understand the history in the story. Understand the science in the story. Understand the biology in the story. We don't teach that way. So we think completely counter to the natural way that humans think. That's why when you take a walk in the woods, you feel good. Because it breaks that. There's a bird, there's a tree, there's a leaf, there's a limb. They're all together. It is natural. The way we live in our lives is not natural. It's not natural to think that way. It's not natural to live that way. It is not natural to design that way. Yet we have been conditioned to do it. So you have to break that mindset. That's what this principle is about. It's not just about, hey, look at my garden. There's 25 things of it instead of one. It is about breaking the conditioned, trained thought process that each thing is separate and different from the other because nature doesn't work that way. The next principle, the greatest yields are always on the edges of systems. And this is a constant as well. That means that when we put a garden in and it has an edge, if we don't put something in that edge, nature will send weeds into it. That's the base of the principle. In a forest, that big tangle we talked about, it's there because the greatest abundance is on the edge. Not in the middle of the forest, not in the field, where the two come together and create an edge. We talked about how the design of a forest is mimicked in a city. Where do most of the people in a city live? In the suburban edge. Between where we go back to a rural society and a truly urban society, that urban-rural fringe is where the most population density generally is. It just happens. If, we, if we, we take it to fishing, and you see a guy in a boat, he's actually catching fish because he knows what he's doing. He looks like he's in the middle of a lake. There's no edge. Bullshit. He's either on a hump, well, that's an edge. So he's in a place where the water's, you know, 30 feet deep, but where he's sitting, it comes up to 18 feet, and there's a hump there. He knows it because his grandfather told him because he found it on his fish finder. That's an edge. Or you're out in the middle of the ocean. All of a sudden, you're catching fish. Where's the edge? Well, you don't just have big predatory fish swimming through the ocean, biting your lure. They have better things to do with their life. No. Somewhere, there's a cloud of plankton. And that plankton creates an edge. And that plankton attracts smaller fish, bait fish, to that. And those bait fish create an edge. And then that edge attracts your predator fish, and then your larger predator fish, and then even the fishermen. All the abundance is on an edge. So when we design systems, we need to do a couple things. We need to maximize edge to the level of our ability to manage it and our desires and goals. We can put too much edge into a system, and then it becomes unmanageable, and it becomes a tangle. But if we limit edge to where there's almost no edge, 
then we lose the diversity. We lose the integration. We lose the nature. We shouldn't put a pond in, make a circle. That's what everybody does. It's easy to do. But if we create a pond with undulating edges, we get much more diversity. We put a pond in, we don't just want a big hole. We want a slope, and then a deep spot, and then another slope, and different textures below the surface that we don't even see, except at the time that we're doing the installation and the design. Edge is everything. Everywhere there's an edge, there's an opportunity. If there's a wall, there's an opportunity. On a western wall, it's an opportunity to plant plants that normally wouldn't survive in our climate or produce in our climate because it's not warm enough. Because that afternoon sun will beat that wall, make a thermal battery, and create an edge where we can grow maybe an apricot where apricots normally wouldn't grow. We can you know, grow a flat a spell yard apricot against the wall, for instance. It's one thing. A south-facing wall, same thing. And a south and west are different. South by southwest is different. We have to figure out what fits on that edge, but that edge is an opportunity. An eastern wall. An eastern wall is great for a plant that needs sun in the morning, but needs to be rested in our hot climate. That edge is not just against the wall. That wall is attached to a building, 12-foot tall building. That building, as the sun moves into the west, casts a shadow. That is an eastern sun, or a western sun shadow, right? It's an eastern sun zone. The wall has created an extended edge. And there's micro differences all, the further we go out from the wall, the, the, what we change how much of that shadow we get, and we get more sun and less shade. But we, all the way out till it's gone, we get some rest in the afternoon. That's another edge. You look up a great big tall tree, right along that empty space, that vine layer, that's an edge. That's an edge. Every place there's an edge, there's an opportunity. Now we decide what we want to do with that opportunity and how much do we want to create and how do we want to manage it. Another design principle. Next one. The forest is the greatest of all teachers. I've said it already today, so I won't go too deep into it. But I really believe that any time you want to know the answer to something, if you will spend time in the forest contemplating it and use your pattern recognition to see the thing in there that is a corollary to your issue, the forest will give you an answer. I don't need this meta metaphysically. I don't think there's little fairies running around out there you know, that, that, that are, that are going to show up and, and, and you know, there's not gnomes or something like that. It's just that natural system. It's so complex. And it's so perfect in what it is that the intelligent designer can observe that system and find the answer to what they're looking for in almost everything. Maybe not everything, but in almost everything. Sufficient to be very good at the craft of designing life and living systems. The next principle is we should be catching, storing, and rebounding energy. We need to look at any system that we're designing and say, well, what does it take to make this system go? And how can we catch more of that energy? Once we've caught it, how can we store it? And where and when do we have an opportunity to rebound it? Here's a way to see this that really kind of puts it in perspective. If we have a system that's on a hill, and we create terraces or swales, which we won't get deep into today, 
The places where as water comes down the hill, it collects and it infiltrates into the ground. And that catches fertility. Topsoil that would have gotten washed away ends up retained and fertility builds. And at the very bottom of that system, we put a pond in. And we've now held the water in our property as long as we can. It goes into that pond. And once that pond's full, the water seeps out onto the neighbor's property. And we don't get to decide what happens to it anymore. And some of our fertility is in that water, and it goes away. And that's called entropy. And it's a constant. It's one of the components of thermodynamics. You can't eliminate entropy. All systems go through entropy. But... We're holding that water in that pond. That pond is an aquatic battery. When the water stops overflowing and it doesn't rain for a while, we'll have that water. But it would take energy to get it back up to the top of the hill. We'd have to use a pump. Maybe we could use a windmill-driven pump. But we, it takes energy. But in that pond, we could grow something like reeds. We grow reeds. And you would think... All the excess fertility that ends up in the pond is permanently lost to the system. But reeds are another battery. Reeds love fertility. The more fertile, the faster they grow. So we put a reed bed in our pond. It soaks up as much of the extra fertility as we can. We now have another battery. We take something simple like a scythe or a rice knife, and we cut the, weed, the reeds We take them all the way up to the top of the hill. We lay them on the berm up there that we're growing our trees in. The fertility just got rebounded. Like bank shotting a BB. Comes back at you, takes your eye out. In this case, bring the fertility back up to the hill. What begins to happen? Entropy. The fertility goes into the soil. The trees use what they can. Break down. Water begins to flow. Next rain cycle, some of the fertility washes down, and new fertility that's gained washes down, ends up in the pond, regrows the reeds, flick, just a little flick, back up into the system again. We'll never get it all, but now we're catching, storing, and rebounding energy. If this principle had been applied to automobiles from the beginning, don't you think the hybrid vehicle would have come along a lot sooner? Even in a regular internal combustion engine, We're using energy to drive the car. When you take your foot off the gas, does the car stop? No, it keeps going. We have to have something called a brake. What happens when you apply the brake? If you, if you get in a car, drove it, and, and hit the brakes over and over again, you know, got up to 50 miles an hour, hit the brakes, got up to 50 miles an hour, hit the brakes, got up and did that like 20 times in a row, pulled the car over, yanked the wheel off, and right where the brakes hit the rotor, Stick your finger on there. What's going to happen to your finger? It'll burn the shit out of your finger. It's hot. What is heat? It's energy. So if we took this principle and we designed the first automobiles and said we know how to make electric motors and gas motors right now, well, we just take all the energy that's wasted from the gas motor, all the coasting, all the braking, and use it to generate electricity and rebound it. We don't get it all. It's not possible. Can't get something for nothing. But how much more efficient would cars be if we'd been designing them that way for 150 years? Instead of sort of, kind of for 20. I'm not saying it solves all the problems of the world. That's what gardens do, by the way. I'm just saying that 
just look at that one principle that we think of as how to grow food and see how it applies to actual scientific design of a mechanical system like a vehicle. They now have bridges that when cars drive across the bridge, they cause the bridge to vibrate. The vibration is used to charge batteries that run the lights on the bridge. This, again, is not going to solve the world's energy crisis, but it's a, it's a type of rebounding of energy, catching, storing, and rebounding energy. Design principle of permaculture. How can you apply it in your life? You can do it with your money. How do you catch, store, and rebound money in your life? You know, you look at it from an energy audit standpoint. Like the first thing you do, I want to, I want to improve the energy efficiency of my home, so I want to put solar panels on it. Well, for how much energy are you wasting? A big gap in your door. All your heat and cold go out there different times of the year. Plug the hole. That'll do more than a solar panel. And now when we add the solar panel, it actually works. Well, think about that. You have excessive spending in your life. I want more money. Well, plug the hole. I also have debt. Oh, so you actually have a hole. You want to plant a farm, but somebody excavated a hole in your backyard. You got to fill the hole. Once the hole's full, all of a sudden you have so much more ability to do things. See, these principles are not just about growing gardens and growing forests. The, the last one, and this might be the most important principle we're going to talk about today or ever, This is a quote from Jeff Lawton from one of his videos. And what he said, and this was a, a system where it was complex earthworks. We'll talk about in the next segment uh, next week. But he could not put a dam where he wanted it because when that dam discharged water, the water would go into a different watershed than it started. And the regulations were... If the water's in this watershed, when it comes onto your property, the same water has to be in the same watershed when it leaves your property. You can't move it to a different catchment. Catchment's what I'm looking for. A valley. And put it into a different valley. Well, I won't get into it because it's very complex, but with a simple solution that involved a couple sandbags and changing the way the water overflowed and when, When the dam became excessive, it pushed it back to another area and went back to its original catchment so we could fit one more dam in. And when he was talking about that, I don't even think he realized the profoundness of what he was saying. He said, the more restrictions upon a design, the more eloquent, eloquent the design if the designer is up to the task. So the more things that restrict what you can do, if you're creative You use the principles we were talking about today and principles we'll be talking about in the future. Your solution becomes more and more elegant. And this is actually sometimes why it's bad to have no restrictions. If I say to you, design a living room. What? Design for just furniture, TV, all that stuff. Well, where's the door? You have no restrictions. But as soon as I draw a house floor plan, there's the front door, here's the kitchen, here's the dining room, design the dining room design a living room, you can design it. Well, that wall obviously needs to be a focal point. So if there's going to be a TV, that's where a TV's going to go. If we're not going to have a TV or a low-tech, that's where a fireplace will go, right? This is a good place to put a couch. So sometimes we get onto a piece of land and we don't really see any restrictions. We can do anything we want. Well, no. We have time restrictions. We have budget restrictions. We have material restrictions. 
And the most important restrictions we have are the three ethics, care of earth, care of people, and return of surplus. As soon as we apply those restrictions to our thinking, we start coming up with a reasonable design. If we understand that, then when we get into a situation where we're like, I really love this property, but you got all these things that prevent you from wanting it, you might be in a position where you say, ah, it's wrong. But you're just as likely to find solutions to them, and you create an opportunity then. Because if that those problems keep other people from wanting to buy that property, and you can solve them through sophisticated, eloquent design then you get the property for next to nothing. Seeming totally unrelated, guy has no idea he's talking about this permaculture principle. One of Robert Kiyosaki's books, he was talking about a real estate deal that one of his students did. And they looked at a property, and the property had a seasonal well on it, meaning that in the dry season, the well went dry. So you had water on the property about six months out of the year. Well, all they ended up doing was putting in some reserve water tanks that were enough for the little home to use, and pumping water into the tanks when it was abundant, and then drawing from the tanks when the well went dry. They got the property for next to nothing, because no one else thought of putting a few thousand dollars worth of poly tanks in and, and filling them up with water. Well, you could have put a, a dam in there. More water than you ever knew what to do with by using this principle. So I want to finish up with some myths about permaculture that are probably already out of your mind at this point, but they're important that we address them because they hold people back when they talk about permaculture. Number one, it's only perennials. When I first heard about permaculture 11, 12 years ago, I thought so too. Agriculture, plant corn, permaculture, plant tree. No. Growing corn can fit right into a permaculture system, or amaranth, or wheat, or annual pasture that we put animals on. Permaculture is about an assemblage of design concepts and an ethical way that they're applied. Almost anything, if we can make it fit with the ethics, can go in permaculture. Which brings me to my next one. It is separate from techniques like, let's say, aquaponics or rotational grazing. I've had people say, well, I don't know. I have one guy sitting in my house. We were talking to him about some projects, and he said, well, I don't know if it's going to be like You know, aquaponics that really save society or permaculture or, you know, holistic grazing. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why do you think aquaponics isn't part of permaculture? Back to its growing annuals. Doesn't matter. Not to mention we can grow perennials with it. Does it care for the earth? Does it care for people? If we use it to return surplus. Does it catch, store, and rebound energy? Aquaponics is perfect for catching, storing, and rebounding energy. One of the most efficient systems ever designed. So the techniques we must think of is arrows within the quiver. So we are permacultures. We have our great bow, and we can shoot a food forest over there, and we can shoot compost pit over there. We pull the arrow out, and we take the shot. Or as Jeff Lawton says, it's outfits within the wardrobe. We don't wear coveralls to church, to a wedding, a formal wedding especially. right? But we also don't wear a tuxedo to go work in the garden. So we take from the, the wardrobe whatever we need for whatever we're dealing with at that time. And as long as we stay true to solid design science, systems thinking, pattern recognition, and the ethics, we're in the world of permaculture.
Lastly, it's only for blank. Don't even care what you put in the blank. I've had people, because they see so much done in the tropics, it only works in the tropics. No, it doesn't. It only works in winter climates. How do you two people come to the same, totally opposite conclusions about the same thing? Perception bias, since that's what you saw. You know, it's only for perennials. It's only for hippies. It's only for farms. It's only for small properties. It's only for big properties. It only works for the map. I've heard everything you can put in that blank, and it's nonsense. Permaculture is for whatever you as a designer make it for. And that's kind of what I want to end with my final thoughts there. The limitations are only what you let them be. Again, we take the restrictions and we make the design eloquent. So what do you want in your life? Whether it's a backyard oasis with birds and trees and flowers and frogs, or whether it's a debt-free lifestyle, or whether it's a faster commute to work, or whether it's more time with your family. It's all about design. What are the patterns? What is the feedback? What is causing the disruption? What is causing the discomfort? We can sit around and say, oh, it's just the way that it is. We can realize we're intelligent beings that have more control over ourselves than anything else we would ever control. Design that the way that meets our needs better. That's what permaculture is really all about. I hope you get that in the takeaway from today's show. And that brings us to the end of another episode. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did and you want to support us, remember there's two main ways. One is to become a member of the Member Support Brigade. Guys, anybody that's ever been a member, I don't care if you joined for one month for five bucks and canceled. Thank you. I've built this show now for over a decade, and the number one way I've been able to do that is because members like you support the show, but it's not PBS. It might sound like it a little bit when I say it that way, but this is not PBS. I do not ask you for $99 and give you a $1 shopping bag with a logo on it. That's not how it works. Um, you guys join. It's 50 bucks a year. That's 18 cents an episode. Then you get discounts on a whole bunch of stuff. And we talked about permaculture today. There is a big part of permaculture that's growing stuff. The seed discounts and the plant discounts from Bob Wells Nursery added to the seed, the, like five seed companies, can probably, for a lot of people in this audience that do a lot of homesteading stuff, cover your membership. Then there's like 65 other companies that do discounts. I just brought on O'Meals. Great for your bug out bags. You know, it is, O'Meals are great to have around just when you end up stuck somewhere and you want a hot meal while you wait. I mean, O'Meals is awesome. Got you 20% discount on that. Gunadapters.com. Got you a discount on the gun adapters for like single shot shotguns and stuff. Just awesome. And it just it keeps going. There is no way if you're actually doing stuff in the survi modern survival, permaculture, homesteading lifestyle, and you're buying some stuff every year, herbal medicines, etc. Any of it, if you use the discounts, you don't get your money back. So check us out. You can join just by clicking on members at the survivalpodcast.com. Then there's the painless way, and that's just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. That's where I put uh, all of my reviews of items that I get from Amazon. If it's, if it's there, I own it. I spent my money on it, or I wouldn't recommend it to you. You can see the deals of the day. You can just start there. That's all you got to do. I don't care what else you do. If you start there, you help support us. But item of the day today is one I'm bringing back around from last summer called Chef Paul's Blackened Redfish Magic Seasoning. Um, we're going to grow all kinds of great stuff. You want to know how to cook it well. And I'm passionate about cooking. This stuff I found from a fishing guide buddy of mine named Omar Cotter. 
He uh, has a guide service called Luck of the Irish. If you ever want to take a fishing trip in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, get with Omar and Luck of the Irish. Awesome dude. I got uh, a couple of my buddies, Patrick Rorman from Empty Knives, another guy named Thad who's a drill sergeant. Or actually, he's now uh, back to regular Army stuff. Uh, he's over in Germany. And um, invited him up, and I took both of them out with Omar. We had a great day. 50-something white bass, a crappy, a blue cat, and like 14 stripers and hybrids. And they were asking me how to cook them, so I was going through some cooking techniques, and Omar's like, oh, you Chef Paul's blackened seasoning. And he didn't say Paul Prudhomme. He said Paul. I'm like, oh, okay, so I'll check this stuff out. And when a guy that fishes for a living tells you something about how to cook a fish, give it a try, right? So when I looked it up, I'm like, I know this guy. He used to be on PBS. He was like one of my cooking mentors when I was a kid. And to like make the TV antenna made out of a, you know, a coat hanger twist so you could see him. Big old fat dude, Cajun guy. Like, yeah, I'll order that. So I ordered it. I tried it. It's fantastic. Black and fish is amazing. In my review, I tell you how to do it. I also tell you about some other things like shrimp and scallops. Let me tell you, this is something you got to try with this stuff. Black and scallops. Here's how you do it. Take like a cutting board or a paper plate or something and put a nice layer of this down. Like you're gonna, almost like you're gonna do a breading station. Melt some butter in a bowl. Take your scallop and and roll it in the butter. So it's got butter on both sides. Take the one flat side of the scallop and dip it into your seasoning. Flip it over. Do it again. Straight into a hot pan. Four or five per batch. Is Watch them cook good hot pan cooking with butter. And you add a little bit of peanut oil to the butter. It'll reduce the smoke points. So you can get a higher temperature with less smoke. Usually this smokes, so I do it outside. But you can do it inside. Again, peanut oil will help reduce the smoke point. Watch the scallop. It'll start to turn white from that translucent color as it cooks. When it gets about that white comes up the edge like halfway, flip it. You cook at that point. Maybe another 30 to 60 seconds. Tilt the pan, spoon some of the hot oil and butter over the tops of the scallops and get them out. Oh, ho, 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 ho. I mean, you're, you're restaurant quality with something this simple. Shrimp, I do them, same thing, melted bowl of butter. Put the shrimp in the butter like you're doing a dredge. Throw them in a zip-top bag with some seasoning and shake them up. Throw them really hot and fast, cook Get them out. When they're just cooked, get them out. You don't want, if a shrimp tastes mushy, you overcooked it. If it tastes rubbery, you overcooked it. Everybody's had overcooked shrimp, no good. Then fish, chicken, pork, this stuff's great on everything. Give it a shot. Chef Paul Prudhomme's Magic Seasoning Blend. And if you want to make it yourself, I even give you a recipe to make your own in the review. It's one of my longer reviews, lots of techniques in it. Uh, check it out. And remember, you can always help us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Next up, our song of the day today is uh, we're in Spiritual Week. And uh, this is Kansas, Carry On My Wayward Son. I think there's a lot of people that just take this song on his face to about, be about Jesus. The song's not about Jesus. Though the man that wrote it, a uh, member of Kansas, did eventually become a Christian in the 80s. This song was written in the 70s, uh, released in 76. I believe the song was written in 75. And what he was really talking, he said he was always on a quest, always trying to find the answer, always trying to find the great spirit, you know, the whatever God is or was, as he put it at the time. And he said that in the end, when he said, surely heaven waits for you, it seemed inappropriate at the time because he hadn't found what he was looking for. But then later when he found Christianity and became a Christian, that it, it was somewhat prophetic. 
But he was really, really clear that this song was never about pushing any religion on anyone or any faith on anyone. It's about the universality that we're all looking for something. I think it's a perfect song for today's show, even though they might seem un unconnected. We in our lives have two ways we can live. And there's only two ways that we can live. We can drift like a leaf in the wind and let the systems that were put in place by others design where we will go. And you can see that because we can tell you on average how many people will die at this age with this amount of money based on where they started because the systems lead there. Or we can design what we really want. We're all seekers. And we seek many things. Not just an answer to where do we come from and where are we going, but what are we supposed to do while we're here? To me, what we're supposed to do while we're here is the best we can for us and those around us. In other words, to take responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Beyond this illusion, I was soaring ever higher.